0: Welcome to Science Night, presented by the River Power Podcast, though. Hello, everyone. We are back with another episode of the Science Night podcast. I am excited to get into this episode, but first make sure that you rate, review, and share this podcast. It's a quick and easy way to grow this community. Also, be sure to check out the other shows from the River Power Podcast Network. Most of the shows are in a bit of a break right now, but they're in that build-up phase, which makes this the best time to catch up with all the great shows like Pulp from Beyond the Veil, Too Many Hats... Please enjoy The View and the Stone Soup Podcast. And before we get into tonight's episode, I wanted to give a shout out to a group that I may have never formally thanked on this show. This is the week of the Experimental Biology Conference, which serves as the annual meeting for the American Association for Anatomy. I've had more than a few guests from this community on the show, including the executive director, Sean Boynes. But watching the virtual sessions this week made me realize how fortunate I am to be part of this community. So to everyone over at AAA, thank you for everything you do. Support from AAA members, who number so many I could not possibly name them all here, are the reason that Science Night gets started, and why we're still going over a year later. So thank you. Tonight... We have Jerry De Silva. He is a biological anthropologist and one of my science communication heroes. I've basically tried to emulate his style every time I talk about science with limited success. He was gracious enough to give me some of his time and to talk about his new book, First Steps, How Upright Walking Made Us Human and it is available everywhere right now so without further starling, here is my conversation with jerry da silva jerry thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast today i'm super excited i am
1: happy to be here thanks for the invitation
0: you know, if you look back on my career in science communication, you know, one may say I am just putting myself into positions to get in a room with you. And um, they're they're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for thank you for indulging me with your time yet again.
1: That's, uh, it's, it's always my pleasure.
0: So, we are here today to talk about your new book, your first book. I believe it's your first book.
1: Yeah, first first, uh, solo authored book. Yes.
0: Awesome. So, the book is First Steps. And because it's a good anthro book, you got to have the colon How Upright Walking Made Us Human. And I got to tell you, I love this book. And I would tell you that even if we were not recording a podcast about this book, I was so excited to read it. Uh, And I think. The biggest reason is because of the writing style that you chose for this specific book. I've taken, I think, almost every class you've taught mm-hmm. at Dartmouth uh, at this point, but I, I don't think I would have needed to, to really have gotten into this book. Can you tell me briefly about how you chose this, this style and how you've developed this style of science communication?
1: Uh, that's a great question before I became a paleoanthropologist, before I searched for fossils of human ancestors and tried to make sense of these scraps of bones that we find, my first job, I started off as a as an educator, as an informal science educator at the Boston Museum of Science. And every day we would teach whoever happened to come to the museum that day, and sometimes it's little kids, and sometimes it's their parents, and sometimes it's school groups, and sometimes it was... Grandparents, um, So people of all ages, people of all backgrounds, people of all sort of levels of scientific knowledge. You know, sometimes you'd be talking uh, about the, the anatomy of the heart to a seven-year-old. And then right next to him happens to be the chief cardiac surgeon of Mass General Hospital. <laughs> and so all of these different levels of knowledge and, and background, and you can't assume anything. And I loved that. I loved teaching Science and all sorts of different kinds of science. Um, one day we'd be talking about open heart surgeries and, and, and valve replacements, and the next day we'd be talking about photosynthesis. And, and the next day we'd be talking uh, with visitors about lightning strikes and how lightning works. And then the next day it was about early human evolution. And so we had to be flexible and nimble, and we had to make connections and meet people where they were. And then as I got very interested in human evolution and paleoanthropology, you end up getting more and more and more and more focused and your writing ends up being uh, filled with jargon. And you know, I can't even tell you how many times I've gotten reviews back from papers that I've submitted to scientific journals and they tell me I'm too conversational. And I would always see that as a compliment, but it, it forced me to then, you know, I wanted this paper to be published uh, and so you have to modify your writing. And you know, decade and a half of writing scientific papers, and I got to be honest with you, finding that that voice that you just described in this book, that was hard. It was really hard to go to rediscover the science museum educator in me. You know, I left the science museum fifteen. Actually, it was in two thousand three, so now it's eighteen years ago, and it took me a while to find that voice. But you know, real quick. My father actually helped me do this. My father was a newspaper editor for many, many years, and he helped me um, uh, with this book. And I would send him a chapter, a draft, and he would go through it and say, okay, this paragraph, this paragraph, this paragraph, beautiful, really nice writing, and this paragraph is garbage. This paragraph, you lost your voice, you were back into professor mode, you're back into scientist mode. You need to modify that, and rediscover again that that science museum educator who can connect with people of all ages and all and all levels. And so again it took me a while but once I rediscovered that voice I had so much fun writing this book.
0: It definitely came through and you know, this this podcast, this entire endeavor, uh, for those of you who just listening to the podcast, this, this was originally supposed to be a live event, which I also forced Jerry to do. Um, and then the pandemic happened and and things happened. But, uh, you know, we focus on science communication just in general. But I think in your profession, dealing specifically with human evolution, you You really have to be able to talk to a way that people are going to at least understand how you're speaking because it is not without pushback from from major sources. So, you know, uh, what advice would you give to like early career um, students, uh, scientists specifically in this field or any field like climate science where there is a public pushback?
1: A couple of things. The first is, is be enthusiastic and excited about, about your science. Um, if you can't be excited about this stuff, how can you expect others to even listen to you or embrace the idea uh, that you're trying to communicate? Be faithful to the evidence. Um, there, there is good evidence for some of the things that we claim about human evolution or about climate change or the things you, you describe. Um, and then other things are more speculative. And so that's okay. The, the scientific process... Uh, is is a verb it's not a noun i mean it's an ongoing thing we're still doing it we're still making discoveries and so when people uh, do challenge you and ask tough questions very often those questions are really good ones you know how do you know how old a fossil is and and that's a great question and you should respond in that way not in some defensive way but in a way that that embraces and say yeah that's a great question here's how scientists have figured out, here's this clever way that scientists have figured out how old these ancient bones are. Or, you know, how do you know that that Lucy, you know, moved on to Lex? Great question. Here are the clever techniques that scientists have come up with to look at the shapes of these bones and reconstruct what these ancient creatures uh, were doing. And of course, we're, we're always trying to learn more. We're always trying to gather more evidence to test these ideas. And so in science, you know, ideas are vulnerable. Um, new discoveries could, could overturn what you once thought was the case. And so it, instead, of, instead of being defensive about your ideas, I think you have to say, well, look, this is what we think we know at this time, but might this change with future discoveries? Of course it might. That is the nature of science. So, so being enthusiastic, Being faithful to the evidence that we have and clear about what we know. Uh, Not being afraid to say, I don't know if someone asks you a question. And sometimes it's a question that you personally don't know the answer to, but the field may. And sometimes it's a question that no one knows the answer to. And that's a great question. Mm -hmm. That's a fabulous question that's, that's being asked. And so, look, you know, you have to meet people where they where they are in their intellectual journey to understand this whole human experiment probing a little deeper sometimes you get tough questions and maybe instead of being defensive with your answer asking a question back trying to understand a little bit more where that person might be coming from and then you can you can sort of meet them where they are and then progress together into this human evolution because you're right we're not talking about Squirrels, or whales or cows. We're talking about us. We're talking about the origins of, of humans. And we take that pretty seriously. And, and so I see it as, right, it's a topic that can lead to tense, controversial discussions, but it also is an opportunity. It's a way, you know, this is a science that can connect to everyone. Some, some scientists will have a hard time connecting with the public, uh, because what they study maybe is really um, distantly related or distantly connected to everyone's life. I, I don't have that problem. These fossils that we work with, um, as we reconstruct why humans move the way they do, that's what I happen to study, but there are other colleagues of mine that study why humans eat what they do and why we think the way we do. And 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 why we talk, and uh, the origins of language, and what and, and, and where did art come from, and and symbolic representation of thought, and all these amazing things that make us human, which you can quite easily, I think, connect with 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 any listener or reader or person that is listening listening to to a lecture. And the last thing that I'll that I'll mention about this is, um, as much as I love to lecture and I love to tell people what I know and what I've learned about human evolution. What I would recommend to people, you know, diving into science communication is to spend a lot of time listening, listening to to people's concerns and people's thoughts about science. And sometimes what you learn is that some of the concerns are are legitimate. You know, scientists have made mistakes. The the scientists historically have, uh, there have been biases. In some respects, we've had an ugly history, but in, in many respects, we've, we've, We've also had a, a fabulously um, successful one. I mean, the, the things we've learned about ourselves in the last few hundred years through this amazing way that we can, we can investigate the natural world through science, an evidence based way to understand the natural world through hypothesis testing, through questions, through, through simply wondering why your world is the way it is and then seeking out evidence to understand it. We now know the age of the universe, the age of the Earth. We know the size of, of the observable universe. We, we know our place in this incredibly vast and old universe. Um, we know our place in the family tree. We know who we're, we're related to. And through the fossils that we've discovered, we now know the path by which we became human. We have many questions, still. lots of things we still don't, still don't know. But wow, what an incredible achievement that we've been able to figure out where we come from.
0: Yeah. You know, I think if this whole uh, science thing doesn't work out for you, you have a a very lucrative and storied career as a self-motivating speaker because the advice that you just gave is wonderful for science communicators, but it is also just good advice for our modern society right now, kind of listening and meeting people where they are, boy if more people me included would do more of that i think we would be in a much uh much more civil society so yeah let's let's do that let's all do that a little bit more Uh, you know, I don't want this podcast to be a book report, so I'm not going to have you go through step-by-step how we got up and walking. Instead, I want to hit on some of the, some of the things that I picked up on as, as like themes, whether you meant for them to be themes or not, only my editor will know the actual answer to that. But the thing I, I really picked up on initially, especially in that first part where you're talking about going out and doing this research uh, and going to the locations where these amazing fossils are, is how few people get to actually see these things. And for your book, you kind of gave us a view that if you're not an expert in human evolution, like I am... I don't think I'm ever going to get to see Lucy's skeleton. I don't think I'm ever going to be able to go into these rooms and kind of be alone with our fossil ancestors. Can you tell me, like, what what is that like? Getting able to be in these kind of sacred, secret spaces?
1: It's magical. I don't know how else to describe it. it it's it's emotional. You know, these are these are some of the rarest. Most sought after objects on Earth. That's a a line that my my friend and colleague Lee Berger has used about early human fossils. They're rarer than diamonds. They're rarer than gold. And yet they they're not diamonds and gold. They're not valuable in that sense. They're valuable in this in in terms of the information that they contain. And our jobs as paleoanthropologists is is to come up with. And to test methods for squeezing every bit of information that we can out of out of these fossils, while simultaneously recognizing that these are, again, not fossils of cows and squirrels and goats and dogs. These are fossils of, of our ancestors. And so, you know, science is, a, is a, an objective way to understand the natural world, but it's being done by emotional primates. And so when I uh, work with these fossils, I have to take a moment um, and put my notebook down and put my calipers down and my, my camera and my scanner and just uh, take them in and really, you know, have an, an emotional moment with them. Um, and it may sound kind of corny, but, but I do. With all these fossils, I spend some time with them and, and appreciate them as the remains of our ancestors and extinct relatives. And so I feel a deep connection to them. And to me, that makes me a better scientist, because then I'm more motivated to say, okay, what can we now say about them and say about them with certainty? Or what can we now say about them, but it's going to be more speculative? What information can I learn from these bones? Because to me, we, we owe it to them. You know, these are individuals who unwittingly died on a landscape that then against all odds, preserved these bones as rocks. They became fossils through these really rare sets of, of circumstances. And now, you know, what an, an incredible opportunity to, to have these things, A, preserve them, be discovered at a time where I'm here, alive, able to ask questions about them and interrogate these bones and try to understand them. And so, yeah, you're, you're right about these remains being so fragile and so rare and so precious that most people never get to see the originals. And I'm conflicted by that because I'm a science educator at heart. And so I want to share everything with everyone. I want, I want people to be able to, to see these things. And so I'm so grateful for the researchers who have the same sort of you know attitude I have about these, which is, Okay, the originals need to be preserved forever, but we can make copies of them. We can make exact copies of them, and those replicas can be distributed to science museums and to uh, classrooms and can be put online so that people all over the world can, can see what these uh, fossils look like, can hold them in their hands and feel them, and can have not the exact same experience that I have with the originals, uh, but can have the closest thing to it. And so I'm a huge advocate for the distribution of um, copies of these fossils, and not all of my colleagues are. And I I will never understand that. Coming from the background I do, coming from this as a science educator, as a museum educator, knowing the value of objects as teaching tools I always have props with me. You know me. I always have a fossil in my pocket. Um, and to think that somebody would make a discovery, and this happens in our field. People make discoveries, they find fossils, and then and then they hide them away, and they don't let others look at them. I don't get it. I, I just, I will never understand that mentality.
0: I obviously am not going to make you go into specifics. You do touch on it in the book in some detail. And in those, in those I'm going to call that a scene, but in, in those scenes, you can kind of feel the hope kind of leech out of you in those moments when you're having those conversations. And again, I told you, I will not make you, uh, go on my esteemed podcast and start naming names, but I, I want to juxtapose that to a project that you were, you were very closely, uh, working with, uh, the Homo Naledi find and the story of the rising star cave is one of my favorite stories in all of I mean, make a movie and we'll call it literature, uh, but but all of science at this point. And the fact that I could go today onto Morphosource and and have a Naledi foot mm-hmm. is a testament to what you're saying. You know, you're not just saying that we should open our collections up, but you're also following through with that. Um do you think that the people that are maybe moving slowly for whatever reason are holding back the science to a degree?
1: I do. I do. At the risk of upsetting colleagues, yeah, I do. Look, every time I have students looking at a cast of, of fossils in my lab, somebody spots something I've never seen before, and I'm supposed to be the expert. Every time I look at fossils, I spot something that either I haven't seen before or someone else hasn't spotted before. Fresh eyes on these fossils allows us to see new things. And not just not just fresh eyes, in addition to fresh eyes, eyes that have had a different lived experience. This has been this has been a predominantly white male science for so long. And that's changing. It's not changing fast enough, but it's changing. And as people who have had different Lives and different experiences and and, and different upbringings and, and have a, a different view on the world as they see these fossils and think of them differently and ask different questions about them, we're going to have a more complete understanding of our evolutionary history. And so I really do think that not allowing others to make observations on, even if it's on replicas of the fossils, um, I think it does limit the curiosity. It limits the questions that are going to be asked. You know, I think about my grad school experience, for instance, and my advisor, Laura McClatchy, and then one of my mentors, Milford Walpolef, had a fabulous cast collection of early hominid remains. And I spent so many hours just poring over these bones and handling them and looking at them and turning them and twisting them and wondering about them and asking questions about them. And observations that I made on Lucy, for instance, originally on casts, uh, ended up being important components to my PhD thesis, which was published what 35 years after she was discovered. And so, a lot of people think that you know we find these fossils and then and then we learn everything we can about them and and then and then you put them away and you close the book on them and you and you walk away. No, new generations of scientists should always go back. And look at these old fossils again with fresh eyes and new research questions. And you might spot something that no one's seen before, but only if you're allowed to look. And that's where I think, yeah, I think the science suffers when fossils are uh, kept at an arm's length. Uh, True to that point, you look at the two discoveries that I talk a lot about in the book, Australopithecus sediba and Homo naledi. And those discoveries were made. And then Lee Berger's team, which I'm lucky to be a part of, the philosophy was we're going to mass produce casts. We're going to distribute them all over the world. We're going to 3D laser scan these fossils and post them to Morphosource uh, so that anyone can access the 3D scans. And what have we seen as a result? Hundreds of scientific papers published on these remains. In just the 12 years since Sediba was discovered, and in just the six years since Homo naledi was, was first announced. And so the science is moving uh, at, a, at a rapid pace because people have access to the remains directly or to the casts where they can make observations, think about the fossils, wonder about them, collect comparative data, and then test using the original fossils.
0: We'll be right back, but first, a quick commercial break. <laughs> Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Phil. And together, we host the History's B-Side Podcast. You know, history is full of amazing stories and memorable people. But we don't care about them. Every week, we break down history's biggest stories and the forgotten people who made them happen. We're not historians. We're just two guys who enjoy a great story and plenty of laughs. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more or follow at history's b-side on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. This is History's B-Side. I want to briefly go back and touch on one thing you said about bringing in fresh eyes and in your book you I think very mindfully bring in these the ideas that maybe five or six years ago would have been thought of as like heresy is going against something as, as set in sown as the obstetric dilemma or something like that. But bringing in people like, like Holly Dunsworth who I've seen her talk and, and just the exasperation that she had in some of those talks. I'm sure she really appreciates the science kind of looking at the evidence as she is providing it and taking it only at its context rather than, oh, this is destroying our beautiful hypothesis. You know, oh, something right, like the right. Semmelweis reflex yeah. where, where we just, no, this is a new thing. E- even though we like to think of ourselves as like, no, the evidence points this out. And, you know, if we have evidence that gravity isn't real, then we have that evidence.
1: Then so, be- exactly, exactly. In science, there can't be any sacred ideas. Everything is on the table. Everything needs to be tested and retested and reevaluated. And right, if the evidence begins to be collected to that points against some idea that was just assumed to be true, then so be it. And right, the obstetrical dilemma is a great example of this, that in the 1950s and 1960s, it was this idea that was proposed that because of the changes to the pelvis related to childbirth, women have a differently shaped pelvis than, than men typically do and that is consistent with with the mechanics of childbirth uh, however the proposed trade-off was that these changes to the pelvis made women less efficient walkers than men are that men are just m- better walkers than, than women this was this was proposed by men and accepted by the scientific community which is mostly men and uh, and then not really tested. it. It was just accepted. Um, and through the 1970s, 80s, 90s, off, you know. And it has been relatively recently that scientists, and, and, and probably not surprisingly women scientists, who have said, wait a minute here, I don't think women walk any less efficiently than men. Is this ever, <laughs> has this ever actually been tested? And the answer was no. Uh, and this is, again, always surprising to students that some of these fundamental ideas that we think we have about about our evolutionary history just are hypotheses um, which have have never been tested, and they need to be. And so Holly Dunsworth, Cara Wall, sheffler Anna Warner, these are scientists who, in different ways, tested aspects of the obstetrical dilemma. They said, okay, if this is true, then here's what we would expect. And each time they found, no, that's actually not what the data show, and so the sexual dilemma is a problematic explanation. Now, I don't think that we throw out the idea entirely. I think there are salvageable aspects of this of this idea. And in fact, there was a paper that just came out last week that was showing that um, well, why doesn't the birth canal get bigger then to allow for an easier birth if the mechanics of walking aren't going to be compromised? And what this paper showed was that it would change the uh, musculature of the pelvic floor in a way that would make uh, prolapse actually more likely Um, and that is what natural selection may have been operating against is that prolapse could have led to individuals dying at a greater rate and those individuals sure birth would have been easier but then pelvic prolapse might have become a real a real survival problem for those individuals and so that's what this hypothesis now has claimed was is now constraining the size of the um, of the pelvis in women, not anything related to the mechanics the mechanics of walking which still is what most people think and so in the book i try to dispel that idea that the science is changing on this Uh, But you're right. You wouldn't believe the pushback that people like Holly Dunsworth are getting. Did, in fact, a a, a critique of her work recently that said she was on par with creationists uh, or something of that effect. And again, it's coming from people that find challenges to these old sacred ideas threatening. That's antithetical to how science should work. You know, science, you follow the evidence where where it takes you, where it leads, even if it means some of those old ideas are wrong.
0: It's... So wonderful that we're talking about this topic, as you have a, a beautiful silverback gorilla uh, directly behind you. Um, you know, we'll just leave that comment where it is. Maybe, maybe we'll leave that on the cutting room floor. The last theme I want to hit on. So. Over the past year, and you've known me for a little bit of time, I I tend to be a little bit—we'll call it a little bit on the negative side from time to time. But you know, in this this season of the podcast, I've talked with Athena Octopus, and she does a lot of work with the Human Generosity Project. And the conclusion to your book—and I'm not gonna—I'm not gonna give away the ending. Uh, Spoilers: We can walk. But the message of empathy and teamwork and being good is something that you spend basically the entire book building building up it, would it be okay if i did a reading of the k n m e r 2596 story um you know separately i can record that and add it in it's fine with me yeah the advantages of bipedal locomotion obviously outweigh the costs Otherwise, we would have gone extinct long ago. But given the many downsides to upright walking and how rare this form of locomotion is in the animal world, I wondered what tipped the scales towards survival rather than extinction. The answer may be found with one of the most wonderful and mysterious aspects of the human condition. To understand, we have to revisit the human fossil record. Some fossils have names like Lucy or Sue. Most have names like KNM-ER2596. KNM stands for Kenya National Museum, the current location of this particular fossil. ER represents East Rudolph, indicating that the fossil was found along the eastern shore of Lake Rudolph, the colonial name for Lake Turkana in northern Kenya. The number 2596 means that it was the 2,596th fossil discovered at that locality, its recovery made in 1974. Since then, more fossils have been collected in that area, bringing the current tally to almost 70,000. KNM ER2596 is a small, cracked piece of a distal tibia, the scientific name for the bottom of the shin bone, where it once met the ankle joint. It is expanded and filled with spongy bone, a clear indication that this fossil belonged to an upright walking hominin. From the size of the bone, we can estimate that this individual weighed a little less than 70 pounds, which is about the size of Lucy. A faint line around the perimeter of the bone is a sealed growth plate, showing that this hominin had reached full size shortly before death. Taken together... These clues suggest a female in her late teens. She died about 1.9 million years ago, according to the amount of radioactivity present in the ash layers that surround the fossil. Several carnivore tooth impressions reveal the probable cause of death. We aren't sure what species KNM-ER2596 belonged to because several different kinds of hominids lived at that time. But something is off about this bone. It doesn't look exactly like the shin bone from Lucy's skeleton or from any other bipedal hominin. The medial malleolus, the roundish knob on the inside of the ankle, is unusually small and atrophied. The ankle joint is angled in a peculiar manner. These odd anatomies sometimes are found in people who break their ankles in childhood and never have the bones set properly. There were no doctors or hospitals 1.9 million years ago, of course. But after this little hominin broke her ankle, leaving her helpless in a world of predators, she didn't die. Not then. She lived long enough to heal and grow up. Fossils are just rocks, but they tell extraordinary stories. Imagine the scene along the eastern side of Lake Turkana 1.9 million years ago. The sun rose, casting golden light across the sprawling grasslands. In a gallery forest hugging a nearby river, monkeys awoke with a racket. Ancestors of zebras, antelopes, and elephants munched their breakfasts, occasionally lifting their head to scan for predators lurking in the tall grass. From the safety of their trees, hominins watched the scene unfold. They didn't dare come to the ground. The predators were hungry, and Hominin was on the menu. But once the sun rose high enough to drive the large cats into the shade, the Hominins climbed down to search for food. They gathered grubs, tubers, fruits, seeds, immature leaves, and maybe even meat, clinging to the bones of kills that cats made during the night. One of those hominins was KNM-ER2596. She was with her family and friends, a group of perhaps two or three dozen. Her mother wasn't feeding her anymore, since there was another baby to take care of. But KNM-ER2596 helped carry the baby as they foraged. As the sun set, she retreated back into a tree and made a nest for the night. Perhaps she looked up and wondered about the points of light in the sky. One day, KNM ER2596's life changed dramatically. Maybe she fell out of a tree. Maybe she stumbled into a ditch. However, it happened, her ankle twisted, the ligaments tore, and the bones shattered. She sprawled on the ground, crying in pain, crying for help. Her mother ran over to help, but couldn't put her baby down, not in the open grass with predators nearby. The rest of the group approached, worried looks on their faces, knowing that the commotion would attract large cats and hyenas. The safest thing for the group was to abandon her there, but that is not what happened. Perhaps some of them carried her to a wooded area and helped her get into a tree. Perhaps the tree was fruiting, and she could nibble without leaving the safety of its branches. Perhaps others brought her grubs, a chunk of antelope, or a handful of seeds. Perhaps it was the rainy season, and she could lick water off the leaves. If we found more of her skeleton, more of her story would be revealed but a precious scrap of her shinbone is the only evidence we have that she existed. Do we know that other members of the group cared for her while she healed? No, but it's difficult to imagine how she survived otherwise. KNM-ER2596 slowly got better, but never lost her limp. When a quadruped such as a zebra or an antelope is badly injured, it hobbles, but it can still walk. When a biped is severely injured, it can no longer walk. Bipedalism not only leaves us vulnerable to leg and foot injuries, but makes us particularly feeble when they happen. If KNM ER2596 were the only example of hominins surviving a catastrophic injury, we'd note how lucky she was and put her in a footnote. But she was not the only one who needed help to survive injury or disease, there were others many others so hearing that story it gives me a little bit more hope for the future if we are evolutionarily predisposed because we have something that makes us more of a prey animal that we have to work together um, maybe that is a better message for the future
1: you know that's what the fossils show me I follow the evidence where where it takes me, and what I am convinced by, by seeing uh, fossils that preserve healed fractures, going back three and a half million years, not in ancestors moving on all fours, but moving on two legs. So if you break your ankle moving on two legs, you're in trouble. How do you not just get eaten by the leopard? And what we're finding instead are fossils that preserve healed fractures, and so to me, it's clear evidence for cooperative behavior, care, compassion, and, and to some degree, uh, empathy in, in our ancestors. And that, that was one of the, the, the critical ingredients to a biped surviving on a, on a dangerous landscape. Moving on two legs, as I write in the book, it makes us slow, it makes us unstable. It looks like we have all these things working against us. So how in the world are we here? How have we how have we survived the rigors of, of natural selection? Um, and I think it's our cooperation that has allowed us to. Um, and again, the fossils I think uh, tell us that. But I want to recognize that you know we're horrible to each other too. We can be absolutely awful to one another. But there's a great book that's been written recently by Brian Hare and Vanessa Woods called Survival of the Friendliest. And they make the argument, I think they're absolutely right, that we can be awful to each other, but only if we dehumanize the other. Only if we treat the individual that we're, we're horrible to as something lesser than us. Um, and, and even not, and not, not human. And you see this throughout history uh, with wars. You see this with, with discrimination. Uh, you see this in white supremacy writing about African Americans. And the dehumanization is what allows us to be to be awful to each other. And so, my hope, and it's you know it echoes what you were just saying, is that yeah, I think I think fundamentally for the seven million year history of our lineage, we've been a cooperative, caring, empathetic species to one another. But we very much can be awful to the other. And so it's in this context that we have to, as a society recognize that, recognize what our uh, predispositions are and our vulnerabilities are to treating others poorly and making sure that we don't dehumanize the other. And look, we, we saw this in the last politi- political election, that you had Americans divided along party lines and referring to the other party as less than human as monsters and that's dangerous that kind of language is incredibly dangerous because uh that's the thing that then that then we use as justification um when when violence when violence breaks out but yeah we are violent but we are also virtuous it's you know something that richard wrangham has written about i think you're right i think there's hope here and i see hope in two places i see hope in the past with the the fossils that we're discovering and the evidence for empathy and compassion in our ancestors. It's deeply rooted in who we are. And then I see hope in the future. The students that I work with now, you know, James yourself and the other students that I've worked with at. Worcester State College in Massachusetts, at Boston University, and now here at Dartmouth. Students I worked with at the University of Michigan. I was at a Northwest Community College in Ohio uh, teaching for a year as well. All of the students that I've that I've been meeting over the course of the last 15 years are able to connect dots between disparate disciplines in ways that I never could. They they're globally savvy. There are, there are communication networks around the world now, connecting people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different religious backgrounds. And what I love about this new generation coming up is that they're impatient. They want there to be justice and change and peace now. You know, and, and once, I really look forward to them being in charge <laughs> and, being, and being the leaders. Because um, I, I, you know, I just I see in that generation, you know, I don't want to put the the, the the future of the world on them, but, you know, there are a lot of problems. Um, but I see them as a generation that can get things done and are not going to have any patience for the way we used to do stuff.
0: Yeah, I hope so. I really I do. hope so, too. I, I want to be mindful of your time. I could talk to you for the rest of the day if given the opportunity, but I will not push my luck. The last thing I want to ask you is how can we, how can we follow you? How can we keep up with what you're doing? How can we support you in the most effective way possible?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So I have a website, um, which uh, if you can post the link, maybe, uh, mm-hmm. Which I, I try to update as much as possible, so you can follow what sort of work I'm doing. You know, whatever events I do are usually posted there. Um, I do have a Twitter account. I'm not a very active Twitter user, but uh, if something is coming up, if I'm giving a talk somewhere, I'll try to post it there. But really, you know, what I what I always tell my students at the end of class is that they are now my ambassadors. That once you've learned about all these incredible fossils, as, as, as you know, as I've tried to. So I've tried to teach folks either through my classes or through this book. You then are my ambassadors to spread the word about how cool this science is and all the really amazing things that are being, that are being discovered. And so tell your friends, tell your family, um, and then they tell their friends and family and, and, and we you know learn a little bit more about where we came from.
0: The book, again, is First Steps, How Up- Upright Walking Made Us Human by Dr. Jerry DeSilva. Thank you so much for giving me your
1: time. Thanks, James. My pleasure. It was great to see you again. Thank
0: you again to Jerry Silva for stopping by to chat with me. Go pick up First Steps, How Upright Walking Made Us Human Today. And if you buy it from an independent local retailer, you're doing it even better. Also, you probably noticed the promo for History's B-Sides during this episode. They aren't a member of River Power yet, but I'm working on that. But they were nice enough to agree to some cross-promotion. Check them out. I love this podcast. I love this concept. And I'm actually getting ready to do a guest appearance on their show very soon. So why not subscribe now so you won't miss it? As always, thank you to everyone at the River Power Podcast Network. Be sure to support all of our great programs. All of Jerry's links will be available on our website, SciNight.com, where you'll also find a link to send us a message. If you're involved in science and would like to be on this show, or you just have a great idea about a future episode, I would love for you to click on that link. Follow the show on Twitter at ScienceNight1 and follow me at James underscore Read3 so you won't miss out on future episodes, announcements, cool science news, and terrible, terrible puns. That is all I have for you. I'll be back in a few weeks, and until then, have a great night.